Welcome back, everyone, and thank you for joining us for today's podcast from Dublin First Baptist Church in Dublin, North Carolina. We hope you'll be encouraged today as you listen to our message. For more information, please visit our website at www.dublinfbc.org. That's www.dublinfbc.org. Now let's join the congregation of Dublin First Baptist as we listen to the preaching of God's Word. And this song from God's Divine Hymnal that we're going to study together tonight, it has as its subject or theme uh, the advent of Jesus Christ. Uh, there's no superscript, uh, but ancient manuscripts and translations they ascribe human authorship to David. And when we consider the term Advent, especially during this time of year, uh, I imagine our, our minds immediately go to the first Advent of Christ, uh, when he condescended, when he took on our divine nature, or our human nature into his divine nature. Some, some believe uh, that is what Psalm 97 is celebrating, but uh, as we read it here in just a moment, I think you're going to find some difficulty connecting any of these verses with that coming of Christ. Uh, no, Psalm 97, it aligns much more closely with Christ's second advent. That's the one we're awaiting even tonight. Uh, hopefully we are anyway, and hopefully we're doing that with the same expectation and hope and joy that those who love, for, uh, love and, and long for uh, an intimate relationship with God just like they did at his first coming. And I hope that our celebrations of Christ's first advent, this upcoming holiday season, I hope they move us to live in a state of expectation for his soon return. As God had Peter uh, call it in his second epistle to us, we should be looking for and hastening the coming day of God. It's that day, it's that advent that is a subject of Psalm 97 and what we're joyfully going to study together this evening. Let's read it. Says the Lord reigneth, let the earth rejoice, let the multitude of isles be glad thereof. Clouds and darkness are round about him. Righteousness and judgment are the habitation of his throne. A fire goeth before him and burneth up his enemies round about. His lightnings enlightened the world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. The heavens declare his righteousness. And all the people see his glory. Confounded be all they that serve graven images, that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Zion heard and was glad, and the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. For thou, Lord, art high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. He preserveth the souls of his saints. He delivereth them out of the hand of the wicked. Light is sown for the righteous, and gladness for the upright in heart. Rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous, and give thanks at the remembrance of his holiness. Before we study this verse by verse, let's pray. Father, as we come to this song you've given us here in the book of Psalms, that you divinely inspired um, to teach us uh, what it's going to be like. Uh, when Christ returns uh, for this world, but also for those who have trusted you as Savior, for the church. Lord, I, I pray that 
we would be able to do what we're told to do here at the beginning, in the middle, and the end of this, this song, that we rejoice, that we would be glad. Lord, I pray that we look forward to that day, uh, not, not just with a, uh, a temporary gaze or momentary gaze, but that it, it would be something that we think of each and every day to the point where it alters the way we think and it motivates us to share the gospel in word and deed. Uh, teach us what it is you want us to learn through this psalm this evening. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, first, we can divide this psalm really into two sections, verses 1 through 7, and then verses 8 through 12. And those first seven verses, um, they tell us about the conditions preceding Christ's advent, uh, what it will be like here on earth, the experience for this world. It's very different than Psalm 96 or 98. Both of those on each side of this psalm, they open up with an invitation for uh, the world to praise the Lord. In Psalm 97.1, it just simply opens this song with this praiseworthy fact, the Lord reigneth, Lord reigneth. That uh, was where Psalm 96 left off in verses 10 through 13. And uh, while the reality for those who have trusted in Christ as their Savior is that from the moment of his resurrection and ascension, Jesus has been. He is right now, and he will always reign from heaven's throne. For those who don't know Christ, they might disagree with this opening statement. The Lord reigneth, uh, either from ignorance of this reality or from a willful rebellion. The world does not have the experiential knowledge of Christ's sovereign reign like we do now or in the future. Uh, the rest of verse 1 invites them to acknowledge that reality now before it becomes a universal reality that everyone will have to acknowledge at Christ's second advent. The entire earth should be rejoicing. The multitude of isles should be glad at Christ's current reign from heaven, his current reign in the hearts of those who are his, and in his coming reign here on earth when Jesus returns. Uh, that term in verse 1, multitude of isles, it's a Hebrew reference that's indicative of any nation that was separated from Israel um, by the sea or the ocean. So really it means all nations should be glad thereof. And then uh, verse 2 begins a four-verse description of what it is going to be like for the entire world at Christ's second advent. When Jesus returns, it will be accompanied by natural wonders, just as God's presence in the Old Testament was. Clouds and darkness, it says in verse 2, are round about him. Clouds and darkness round about him, righteousness and judgment are the habitation, they are what surrounds his throne. Uh, in the Bible, these natural or supernatural occurrences are known as a theophany. It's a visible manifestation of God to man. Do you remember what it was like um, on Mount Sinai, back in Exodus, when God descended there to meet Moses, to give the law to Israel? to initiate and establish his covenant with them, there was clouds, right? Yeah, the, the clouds and darkness swallowed up the entire mountain. Uh, the men who meet for Bible study at Melton's here uh, on Saturdays, we've been going through Amos. Amos chapter 5, verses 18 and 19 say this, Woe to you who long for the day of the Lord. Why do you long for it? That day will be darkness, not light. Of course, God's speaking through Amos there. Uh, to people who were not ready for that day. They have not repented and turned to God 
for salvation. And then verse 2 says that these two eternal, immutable attributes of God, righteousness and judgment, they will be dispensed, they will be delivered to everyone at the second advent of Christ. Now, verses 3 and 5, they continue the description of what this world will experience at Christ's second advent. It says, a fire goeth before him, it burneth up his enemies round about, his lightnings enlightened the whole world. The earth saw and trembled. The hills melted like wax at the presence of the Lord, at the presence of the Lord of the whole earth. Can you recognize the parallel between um, the descriptions here in these verses and those um, seal and trumpet and bowl judgments uh, that are poured out on, that are experienced by this world that the book of Revelation details for us? Do you see the parallel here? Fire, Revelation 14.10 says, They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. And Revelation 1.14, 2.18, and 19.12 describe the eyes of Jesus as being flames of fire. And Revelation 10.1, his legs like pillars of fire. What about verse 4? It says, His lightnings enlighten the world. Well, in Revelation 4, 5, it says, From the throne came flashes of lightnings, rumblings, and peals of thunder. Revelation 8, 5, Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it onto the earth. And there came peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. And in Revelation 16, 17 and 18, The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done! It's done. Then there came flashes of lightning. What about verse 5? It says, the hills melted like wax. Is that just a poetic psalm's description? Can we take it literally? God, yeah, there you go. <laughs> God tells us through the Apostle Peter in 2 Peter 3, 7, by the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire, being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. And then verses 10 and 11 say, the elements the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Melting hills. Can we take that literally? Do you remember when uh, in 1 Kings, uh, when fire from heaven was called down by Elijah to that altar to prove that God was God alone? Verse, 13, verse 38 says, Then the fire of the Lord fell, and it consumed the burnt sacrifice and the wood and the stones and the dust. And it even licked up the water that was in the trench. I'm going to ask uh, Tommy to show a video here that um, actually Lewis sent it to me. It's just an excerpt of that. But... Um, Right in front of us here is a melted beach where the sand and the stones were literally melted together like concrete. Really? This is not loose sand. This is a melted beach which the pillar of fire created when it stood here. So Separating the Egyptian army yeah. from the fleeing Israelites. Yeah. So again, this is more evidence you know, that confirms the location My here. My goodness. Now, how did you find out about that? I heard about it and then I, I saw it myself, you know. So here it is. You see this rock is just infused in with the sand and the little rocks there. 
and this is all hardened. This is like concrete. That and is amazing. Jason here is stepping on it. It's, it's very solid. This is a different area. How did the locals explain this? I asked the local, the hotel owner was here with us that we know, and he says, I've never seen this before. You know, he said his hotel's in a different area, but you know, he was amazed at what he saw. So, uh, well, there's the evidence right there. It's yeah, solid. Right. And so a piece of it was broken off for us to look at. And you can see up close here, all the little rocks and the sand, they're melted together, infused wow. by the pillar of fire. And this goes on for some ways. Yeah. And um, so it says, hills melted like wax at Christ's second coming, the things that are preceding it. And we read of it in Revelation. And there's so many people that want to say, eh, it's all allegorical. It's just symbolic. You can't really believe all that things, all those things will happen. Uh, that, and it's interesting in that video, um, they sent dive teams down in the Red Sea right out of there. And you know what they found at the bottom of the Red Sea? Chariot axles covered in coral. A bunch of them. A bunch of them. Now, I mean, I, I'm not saying they don't have, like, proof of this. But how many times other times, I mean, what are those chariot axles doing down there? Somebody just had a bunch of chariot axles and was like, <clears throat> get them out of here. No. Well, God's word is true. We can count on it. What about Christ's uh, second coming and its effect on the world? Verses 6 and 7. It continues the description of the conditions preceding Christ's return, but now it's an emphasis on the effect that they'll have on the people of this world. It says in verse 6, the heavens declare his righteousness and all the people see his glory. Well, that's what we're told in Revelation 1. Jesus says that to John in that opening chapter, that he's going to come back, and when he does, every eye will see him. We're not talking about the rapture. We're talking about Christ's second coming to earth, not to the air to get us, to earth. Every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. The heavens declare his righteousness, and all people will see his glory. And, and that much is true right now, even. I mean, God's glory is available for us to see. That's what God says in Romans 1. You and I could walk out those doors, and we can look all around us at creation. And the universe calls mankind to believe in God and to seek God. Uh, simply recognizing that there is a creator behind everything that's around us. It should help us understand, as Romans 1 says, by the things that are made, his eternal power and Godhead. So they are without excuse. But why don't so many see that and recognize God's glory? God says in that same chapter, it's because they suppress the truth in unrighteousness. They know it's true. They won't admit it because admitting it would make them culpable and make them accountable to what follows from admitting that reality. But then Christ returns, and when he does, all that's been described in verses 3 through 6, when that occurs in front of their faces, they'll have no choice but to recognize God to admit their foolishness and rebellion and to bow the knee. They will bow the knee to the returning Christ. The problem is by then, it's too late. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 10 and 11 says so. But to be saved from experiencing the judgments talked about here at Christ's second advent, we must bow and confess that right now. Now. We have to repent and believe now. We have to trust Christ and Christ alone now. Place all of our, our hope for salvation in him. Charles Spurgeon said, If you have not something better than your own goodness, your own works, you'll never get to heaven. You'll never be saved. Salvation's by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. Amen? That's it.
Verse 7 says, Confounded be all they that serve graven images, they that boast themselves of idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Confounded means to be put to shame, to be disgraced. That's the effect for those who refuse God's gracious offer of salvation to us by faith in Christ and who instead, they serve graven images and they boast themselves of idols. Will people really be guilty of worshiping idols preceding Christ's second coming to earth? Shoot, people are now, aren't they? But Revelation 19.20 tells us about the idolatry that's going to be present right before Christ returns and what will happen as a result. It says that those who receive the mark of the beast and who worshiped his image, they were killed by the sword that proceeded from the mouth of him who sat on the horse and all the birds were filled with their flesh. Confounded, put to shame, disgraced, that seems kind of like an understatement when this is the promised effect on the world who's rejected Christ and worshiped the Antichrist. And the end of verse 7 says, worship him, all ye gods, small g. I can't help but think of uh, in 1 Samuel uh, when uh, the Philistines captured the Ark of the Covenant and, and they thought it was some kind of powerful token and they brought it into the temple of their idol fish god, Dagon. And um, the next morning, that idol Dagon had fallen face first, bowing in front of the Ark of the Covenant. And they set him back up. And the next morning they went, and he was back on the floor again, face first, this time his head and his hands broken off. He just left them be. Listen, when God says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess, he means every, even idols. Worship him, all ye gods. Now let's look at the conditions proceeding from Christ's uh, advent, the, really the experience for the church, and that's what begins here in verse 8. Uh, because if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, verses 1 through 7, they won't be your experience. You won't be here. Uh, in fact, you will be returning from heaven where you have been with Jesus Christ. And what does his second advent bring for us? What's, what's our experience? So Zion heard and was glad. And the daughters of Judah rejoiced because of thy judgments, O Lord. Now there's a literal application here for God's people Israel. There's also a literal application for God's people the church. In verse 8 as well, at Christ's return, there is going to be a great number of people from um, his national and ethnic people, Israel, uh, and they're going to experience the fulfillment of all the Old Testament covenants that God has made with them. There'll be a great number of them turning to Christ. Jesus will reign here on earth in the millennium for a thousand years, and he'll reign from Israel, from Jerusalem, from Zion. He was rejected as King of Kings and Lord of Lords at his first advent. Not this time. This time he will be received. But Zion is also a figurative picture of God's people, the church, too. A lot of our hymns even include that, and it's talking about the church. It's not talking about Jerusalem. Uh, In the Old Testament, Zion or Jerusalem, it, it was symbolic of the presence of God. That's where the temple was. That's where the Ark of the Covenant was. But what now? What for the church? Today, the presence of God is in us, right? individually and dwelling in the Holy Spirit, collectively in like a more powerful way when we come together. The Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ indwelling us and the experience of Christ's return for those who have received Christ as their Savior, whether you're from ethnic Israel or spiritual Israel, as Paul calls us, it's only this. Rejoicing, gladness, 
Whether we read uh, the prophecies of that coming day in the Old Testament or, or in the New or in Revelation, it is not ours to fear or to be anxious about any of these things. Uh, that first chapter of Revelation records Jesus telling John uh, and all of us who have trusted Christ this, don't be afraid. He says, I am the first and the last. I am he who lives and I was dead and I'm alive forevermore. Amen. And I hold the keys to death and hell. So no fear about these things. Gladness and rejoicing, that's going to be our experience on that coming day of Christ's second advent. And it should be our experience right now while we live in eager expectation of it. Because as Psalm 97.9 says, the Lord, he's high above all the earth. Thou art exalted far above all gods. That's who saved us. That's who we serve. That's who we know in Jesus Christ. And that's why Christ's second advent should have this effect on the church. Verse 10. Do you love him? Well, then hate evil. He preserves the souls of his saints. He delivers them out of the hand of the wicked. Hate evil. Jesus asked his disciples in Luke 6, 46, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, but do not do the things which I say? You who love the Lord hate evil. On Sunday evenings in our Abiding in Christ study, we've learned that Jesus tells us in John 15, 9 and 10, As the Father loved me, so have I loved you. Remain, remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands, and I remain in his love. Please understand, we do not do this to be saved. We do this because we are saved. We obey. O obedience to God and obedience to his word and to his will for our lives, it is not the condition of God's love. It's not how we get God's love. It's already there. But it is the sphere in which we really enjoy and experience God's love. Uh, we don't do this to be saved. We do it because we are saved. And it's how we rejoice. It's how we obey that command there. Rejoice and be glad and tell Christ, second advent. Obedience to the commands of Jesus isn't the cause of our salvation. It's the effect. And it's the effect that Christ's second coming, his second advent, should have on us right now. God tells us in 1 John 3, 2 and 3. What precious verses. Beloved, now we are the children of God. And it has been revealed what we shall be. But we know that when he is revealed, we shall be like him, for we shall see him just as he is. And every man, every man that has this hope in him, the second heaven, the second coming of Christ, every man that has this hope in him, he purifies himself, even as he is pure. Ye that love the Lord hate evil. That should be the effect on the church of Christ's second advent. It might be that that command right there is one of the most broken among God's people. We, lovers of the Lord, we um, might hate evil people. That's not what God says here. Uh, we often attempt to love the Lord and love or accept the things that he hates. Well, that doesn't work. And it should be our prayer, God, give us a love for you and a love for others that's loving enough to love them by hating evil. 
Verse 11 gives us another effect. Light is sown for the righteous and gladness for the upright in heart. I mean, that's happening right here in this chapter. It happens anywhere. We come to prophetic things that I talk about Christ's second advent. God tells us in 1 Thessalonians 5, 4, I'm so glad for this. He says, but you, brethren, you're not in darkness that that day should overtake you as a thief. And then 2 Thessalonians 2, 2, don't be soon shaken in mind. Don't be troubled about this no gladness and rejoicing because we're walking we're, we're to be walking in the light of what's ahead that god has revealed to us in passages of scripture like this gladness and rejoicing that will be our experience in that coming day on christ's second advent and it should be our experience now while we live in eager expectation of it and finally this advent psalm that's in the middle of the joy collection psalm 95 to 100 uh, that's known as a joy collect, uh, collection this last verse here reminds us to rejoice in the Lord, ye righteous. There are a lot of things that attempt to steal our joy. And, and they will do so if we let them by not grounding our joy in Jesus Christ and in his imminent return for us. You know, as we enter a season celebrating Christ's first advent, won't you keep your joy in Jesus Christ and on Jesus Christ? I want you to commit to do that tonight. Be, be very intentional about doing that in um, the next month and a half. Because there's plenty of things that try to take Christ out of Christmas, aren't there? Don't let that happen. Uh, keep your joy in him. Uh, if not all year, especially now at this time of year. And, and as we enter uh, first, <laughs> we're entering a season of giving thanks. Won't you obey the command at the end of verse 12? Give thanks. For the remembrance of his holiness. There's no one like him. He's holy, totally unique, totally different than anyone or anything. Jesus is better. He's high above all the earth, exalted far above all gods, like verse 9 said. You know, this song began by helping us look forward to a day when all of the earth, not just us here in our little sanctuary or other churches meeting on a Wednesday night, when all the earth will rejoice in Christ's reign. That's how it began, but it ends here in verse 12 by calling on us who serve Jesus to lead the way in that kind of worship right now.